1: everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles Live. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsing, And with me, my new co-host, the lead investigator for East Bridgewater's Most Haunted, and Wrongway Kerrigan.
3: <laughs> Hello, Ron. How are you? Hey, doing? how are you? I'm great.
1: So are you you nervous?
3: Yes.
1: (laughs) Because you are sitting next to greatness. You know that, right?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. That's
1: it. (laughs) Anyway, Ann has been investigating the paranormal and produces a TV show called East Bridgewater's Most Haunted, which is funny because our first guest, is probably the name most associated with uh, the real... Well, I shouldn't say the real, because was as real. The UK Most Haunted, uh, Dr. Karen O'Keefe.
0: Good evening. Hello.
1: Hey, how are you?
0: All right. How are you, Ron?
1: I mean, good. How does, how does that make you feel anywhere, where, like, you know, Ann is doing a TV show here in the U.S. called East Bridgewater's Most Haunted? I mean, are you...
0: Uh, flattered, annoyed, or don't give a crap? Um, I'm, I'm flattered. I think the TV uh, producers are flattered, but I think, uh, given Anne's experience, good evening, Anne, by the way.
3: (laughs) Hello, Um, how are you?
0: (laughs) Okay. I think given Anne's experience, um, she might even call her show most haunted anyway, even if ours had never existed. Because at the end of the day, all we're talking about is the most haunted places in a particular area. So I'm flattered on the one hand, but uh, I think Anne may have come up with the the, uh, the name herself, even if most haunted in the U.K. had never even existed.
3: Well, thank you very much, and I'm very relieved that you're flattered. <laughs> I was a little worried.
0: <laughs> well, I haven't seen it yet, so...
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, no worry, no competition.
3: I, I don't, yeah, I don't think so.
1: <laughs> Not but, much
3: competition.
1: Uh, you know, it's interesting, though, because... Uh, That term gets thrown about so easy nowadays, you know. uh, Derby, the most haunted city in England. I I think I heard that from Richard Felix, but I could be wrong. Uh, But, I mean, so many places called you know, the most haunted uh, site in America, the most haunted this, the most haunted that. It's kind of lost its its zing to it, don't
0: you think? It has. I think it really has. I think... uh Yeah, if you list all of the supposed most haunted places in the world, that list would be endless. It would be enormous. And at the end of the day, uh, what does it mean? What does a most haunted place mean? Does it mean that it has more eyewitness accounts than any other location? Does it mean that, although it doesn't have so many eyewitness accounts, the phenomena that it has is more reliable and, uh, occurs more frequently, um, does it mean that the phenomena is more intense? Does it mean that the place looks more spooky? Okay. You know, what does what does it actually, actually mean, the term most haunted?
1: The most haunted stories? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows?
0: Who knows? Uh, but I think, you know, I think for us, as investigators, um we we can't we can 't really say necessarily what the most haunted place is, but for us, I think perhaps it 's all about reliability in terms of eyewitness accounts and getting independent eyewitness accounts um, but also maybe getting accounts that go back a significant period of time, not just necessarily ones within the last couple of years or so, unless of course you 've got um you know a haunted location where You've got a high frequency of experiences that have happened within the last couple of years, so it's kind of a you know a, a compromise between the two. But.
1: but but it's all relative. I mean, it, yeah. you know yourself being asked on millions of shows and millions of yeah. TV things, uh, and and even myself. And, and I bet you Ian too. Whenever you do a presentation, they want to know, well, what was the most haunted place you went to? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And, and I kind of, that's all subject, you know, I mean, yeah. you might have gone to a place, and uh, and, and actually this is a, is a case of this, and it's in my new book, where one of the investigators had his pants pulled down. Uh, to him, that might have be been the most haunted place in the world, because that happened to him, but nothing else ever happened. Yeah, you're absolutely the- right. If I,
0: if I had been in um, the Tower of London and my pants would have been pulled down, I would have been very <laughs> impressed.
1: Well, I, 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 think I don't the know. Queen the TV might have cameras would have been. Too. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can't vote for you. So, uh.
0: <laughs> but you're right. See, one of my favourite locations, uh, if anybody asks me about most haunted locations, is uh, Hampton Court Palace um, here in England, and that's a place that's very, very much tied to Henry VIII and his wives. Karen, I'm going to have
1: to interject in a minute here because I believe that you must be psychic because in the Paradox chat room somebody just asked what was one of your most favorite haunted places. Oh, my God. That's (laughs) a psychic flash right there. Ah, uh So continue. Hampton Court, Cassie. I apologize for that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Hampton Court Palace, um, one of my favorite locations. Difficult to get access to it, but I've been fortunate to be there with a university research team. But it's one of my favourite places because you're talking about written eyewitness accounts, so eyewitness accounts that have been recorded for over 150 years. Wow! Uh, and you've got pages and pages and pages of accounts, and also the accounts vary in terms of who the people are, and that kind of, for me, it typifies, um, you know, the the haunting field. It typ- typifies. The, the ghost field, if you like, that we're not just, as some of my cynical colleagues say, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, gullible people that are just hoping for something else. We're talking about um, high, often highly educated people. We're talking about people at all levels of educational background, people from loads of different walks of life, from royalty to staff, to servants, to security, to military, you name it. And I think for me, Hampton Court Palace typifies that because you've got this huge broad section of eyewitness accounts. Brilliant place.
1: It's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, it did have that closed-circuit TV one, too. Uh, I, I think I touched, asked you that before, but uh, just a quick yeah. one. Was it real or wasn't it real?
0: Uh, so cool. You're specifically talking about the the CCTV footage of, uh Henry, he,
1: the clo- fifth, eighth or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, there was a, there was there was this footage supposedly of a cloaked figure walking mm-hmm. out of the fire exit doors.
3: Right. Oh, uh, wow.
0: Yeah, uh, you can find it quite easily on the internet, mm-hmm. and no, it's not real. Well, it's not real as in it's, it's not a ghost because you've got. Um, a supposed hooded figure who's meant to be dated a couple of hundred years ago, and yet they have knowledge of modern fire exit doors, and they're wearing white uh, gym shoes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> that so might be no, a little giveaway.
0: <laughs> no, but the fascinating thing is, and of course the thing that never made it to the papers, is when you talk to the security who were on that entire week and who do shifts you know, uh, weeks and weeks prior to that and after that, the reason why they were focusing so much on the CCTV footage was because, for at least a couple of weeks prior to that particular night, when this uh, whoever was playing a joke, dressed up in a cloak, in a in a cloak, and was caught on camera, for weeks leading up to that, um, they kept having to send security to that particular corridor because the fire exit doors were opening of their own accord. And then at the point sometimes when security were approaching the fire exit doors, they would close by themselves. And not slam, but they would just close by themselves. It didn't happen all the time. They were also looking at the possibility that it might be uh, the wind outside, but it was a very, very calm time of year when all of this happened. So it couldn't have be that. So there, there's an example of something that kind of typifies our field again. You've got right. something that is obviously fake, or at least mm-hmm. you could surmise that it's fake, but then the backstory to it is an intriguing story that's great to tr- try and get your teeth into.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't yeah. imagine what they must catch on security cameras. You've got cameras running 24-7 in mm-hmm. a place like that. Yeah. I mean, I would think that footage alone would be amazing.
1: You know what's interesting is our new book. Once again, I keep referring to it because it's so cool. There's so many different things from all over. But one of the a bunch of the stories that are in this book called "Goes the Day in September" is a whole series of closed-circuit TV cameras that have captured different things from Romanian uh, gas stations to gas stations in in America to uh, uh, schools, everything. So I I imagine in in the UK it's no different than elsewhere in the world.
0: No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think the difficulty is, you know, as you probably cover in your book and Anne's aware of we're being... You know, involved in the field and investigating, we have to kind of weigh up the good from the bad in the same way that we do with digital photographs, with night vision footage, you know, any of this stuff. We have to weigh up the good with the bad. And sometimes the difficulty with CCTV footage is the quality of it. Right. You know, you're not dealing with camera systems that are set up by investigators to actually, you know, find uh, you know evidence of an apparition you're dealing with camera systems that are set up just to catch you know a perpetrator trying to break into a place simple as that um, and so the quality is not necessarily as good as we would hope for investigators and so that way you know for, for a large percentage i think it's uh, it's dubious as whether we're dealing with evidence but like you say ron this is a worldwide thing now and as that sort of technology increases I think we may get more and more reports, you know, and that's know. only a good thing.
1: Right. I I know that uh, Bob in the uh, chat room uh, on the TojiNet chat room mentioned that London has the most uh, cameras cameras of, as a city in the world.
0: Yeah, it very much is uh, an Orwellian Big Brother scenario <laughs> where it doesn't matter doesn't matter doesn't matter where you are and what you're doing. You're probably on a camera somewhere um, in in London, certainly. So. Uh, yeah, so if there is anything out there, then then hopefully it'll be caught. But the problem is, of course, that uh, even, for example, somewhere like Hampton Court Palace, Anne was saying, you know, all these cameras are running 24 hours and there's cameras all over the place. Yeah, it's great, but they're specifically looking for something. So they're looking for somebody breaking in. The, the place is alarmed. If an alarm goes off, they look at that particular camera. Otherwise, they're not necessarily... Looking at the footage the entire time, and if nothing happens on any given night or at any particular area in the palace, they're not going to look back over mm-hmm. that footage like an investigator would. So there may be hours and hours and hundreds and thousands of hours of footage out there with some of these CCTV cameras at the palace, but also around London and and uh, uh, you know allegedly haunted locations in London. But mm-hmm. it needs somebody to go through it, and that's the problem because. As you and I know, it's just a nightmare. It's it's the dumbest <laughs> thing in
3: the world to do.
1: It's so tedious. It yeah. really is. Yeah, most people don't realize that. They just want to go running around the dock with their little meters and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, get scared, basically. <laughs> but uh, if you do any serious investigating, do you know you have to go through all this stuff? And oh. you have to do it during real time. You really yeah. okay. shouldn't.
0: I know. There's, there's I know.
3: so many things that little tiny things that I've caught you know in our footage but which we also use security cameras because we have no money um, yeah. and I mean things that I would have totally missed just little light anomalies um, I, I wouldn't have missed them unless I watched it in real time and you know, just shuttle right. through it
1: you know? uh, I would like to add something too about uh, as far as uh, closed circuit cameras or any cameras that are being broadcast or any line, is is that sometimes you can pick up phantom images, which means uh, yeah. you're actually picking up interference from a, another signal uh, that can show up on, on a camera.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's very true, and it's, it's something, I guess, people don't know enough about. And also the fact that, um, you know, with some of these, I know there was a case in the States before Christmas, I think it was, Again, at a gas station where uh, there was a report of a particular apparition going across the forecourt at the gas station. And it turned out to be an insect or something crawling across the lens right. of the CCTV camera. And that's the other thing is that you can get... you It's becoming familiar with what CCTV cameras do. Because at the end of the day, there is that distortion going on, you know, as things get closer to the lens. So that's another thing to watch out for.
1: Okay, well, we have to take another question from the uh, chat room. You are listening okay. to Ghost Chronicles Live with uh, Ron Coligan and Kerrigan, and our special guest is Dr. Karen O'Keefe. And uh, this uh, this is regards to Most Haunted, and we know we would get questions about Most Haunted. Yeah. And they asked about the Pendle Hill investigation. Oh. Uh, I, I understand that, that was you know, a really a, a freaky one as far as a lot of strange things and actually some things happened to the cast members as well.
0: Yes, Pendle Hill was uh, a live Halloween show um, a few years ago. Uh, I think it might have been 2006 um, and it's an area associated with witches, uh, the witches of Pendle Hill. And we're not talking about modern day witches. We're talking about kind of the witch trials um, that happened in England several, several hundred years ago. And during the build-up to the particular incident, there had been investigation of other locations around Pendle Hill where there had been a frequent reference to uh, witches being hung. When we ended up at this particular farm the last hour of the live show. It was a farm called Tyndale Farm. Um, about 15 minutes in, the sound man started to get a choking sensation around his throat. He um, was having difficulty breathing, essentially. And the medium at the time said that it, uh, it, or it looked as though it was um, a rope or something choking him.
1: He Do was you know who, who the medium at the time was, uh, John?
0: Yes, I know exactly. It was Derek acora OK. Um, I
1: enjoyed
0: him. The sa- yes, <laughs> the sound. Yes. enjoyed is a great word.
1: The sound- <laughs> the sound- We're moving man- right along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the sound man was taken out of the environment, quite rightly, and I think Derek may have even suggested that, so kudos for him for suggesting that. So the, the sound man was taken out, and then almost uh, instantly, or I think even before he was actually re- taken out of the farm... Another member of the crew kind of doubled over, saying that they were having difficulty breathing. They were taken out. So they, were, they were both treated by paramedics or kind of you know um, helped by paramedics. Uh, the sounds that was going on in the farm continued. Uh, people kind of um, went back into the into the farm to rejoin that. One, another member of the crew. Started to feel her feel her legs give away. She had to be carried out because her legs collapsed from underneath her. Um, somebody else uh, fainted and was taken out. And then um, at one point, the cameraman felt as though something was touching the back of his head, and then he just collapsed completely. Oh. So it was it was terrifying. I think wow. for the viewers at home because what they were witnessing was all of these things. Happening to the crew, this whole build-up about witches and hanging and all of that stuff, and people looked as though they were genuinely fainting and and whatever was happening to them, and then suddenly you had nothing on TV because the cameraman collapsed, the camera but fell to gone. the floor, and right. everything was gone. It was just a black screen.
3: Oh my God! Uh,
0: and that's why it kind of goes down in most haunted history as one of uh, kind of the the better, if not the most um, terrifying moments. Right. And wow. at one point in that, we had the beginning of that um, sequence in the, uh, in the farm. We had maybe 11 or 12 people. So we had the team, we had the production crew, and we had various uh, security there. At one point, um, towards the end, it's, it was just Yvette and myself inside the farm. Everybody wow. else was either outside having collapsed or they were outside helping other people, trying to, you know, get them to give them water and get them air, that sort of thing. And so yeah. Yvette said to me, you know, what, what was it like? And, and still to this day, it was like being a medic on a battlefield. It was simply like that. I didn't know which way to look because as soon as you looked over at one person because they were – calling out or they were falling over then you know something happened to somebody else at the other side of the room. It was just, uh, yeah, it was. And now
3: now the two of you were able to continue when you were not affected?
0: Yes, yeah we weren't affected at all. Something Yvette and myself discuss frequently Um, Uh in terms of that particular moment. And also other moments where there have been things happen to various members of the crew, but not to the two of us. And this is what, this is what makes, it, makes it quite interesting in terms of the controversy of the show about what exactly is going on. Is it real? Is it not? Yvette says that stuff doesn't happen to her because she strongly believes that she has a couple of very, very close family members who are in the spirit world who look out for her. They it very make much sense. protect her, she prays to them, that sort of thing. That's her perspective on why nothing happens to her. For me, um, it's, I don't know if the opposite is the right way of putting it, but I'm quite, as you know, Ron, I'm quite rational, rationally minded. I look for the scientific explanation all the time. And for a lot of these incidents, I think there's perfectly natural explanations for what's going on. And as a psychologist... I don't let myself get caught up in some of those natural explanations. But also some other people have said perhaps, and I'm willing to accept this as a possible explanation, perhaps I may be too close-minded to some of this, you know, and that in a way has formed some sort of protection against mm-hmm. these
1: things. Yeah, you know, it's inter- interesting, uh, Karen, because uh, we, we always get that, asked a question, you, you know, someone who's a non-believer will say, you know, nothing's ever happened to me, you know. But the, the, the thing of it is that uh, some person who is so skeptical that if a, ge- a ghost came up and slapped him across the face, they still wouldn't believe. And if you're a spirit and you, you have to ex- use a lot of energy to either move an object or, or to make yourself uh, materialize or, or to throw something or whatever, uh, you would tend to waste that energy on somebody who would believe you rather than someone who wouldn't. So that they say that's one of the reasons why, or one of the possible explanations, why that uh, a real skeptic doesn't have too much happen to him.
0: Yeah, that's true, and, and I would say more so a cynic than a skeptic. But yeah, I could... I could.
1: Yeah, cynic's that a good word, I agree.
0: Yeah, but I could follow that train of thought, definitely. if If a ghost did come up to me and slap me in the face... If it was witnessed by another person and it was filmed, then I'd be impressed. Be myself, I'd be a little less impressed.
1: We, we actually have quite a few questions from the, 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 the uh, Pararex chair okay. room, and one of them is, uh, well, uh, was David Wells in that investigation at Pendle Hill?
0: Yes, but he wasn't in the farm, but okay. he was actually uh, involved in that whole weekend, and he had done some automatic writing at the time, which kind of... Pinpointed, I think, within the automatic writing, he actually drew an arrow, almost like a compass point, and the orientation of that paper meant that the arrow was pointed directly at that farm. And this was something that that he had done the night before—quite an ominous sign that something was going to happen at that farm.
1: Huh, that's interesting. And, and also, they mentioned something about a mirror in David Wells. I don't know anything about that. I don't.
0: Yes, movies. there was a uh, um, scrying that was happening again. This was. Pendle Hill, this was the live show, it was a different location, so Mm -hmm. we filmed over three nights, and it was a different location, and uh, we were split up, so David Wells was downstairs in the basement conducting a scrying exercise, for people that don't know, that's looking into a mirror and uh, attempting to get either a, a face of a spirit superimposed on yours, or your face actually turns you know, you can see um, kind of your features changing to match kind of a spirit face. And it comes from an old uh, Greek method of of scrying, which is looking into a pool of reflective blood. But nowadays we use uh, mirrors. And there are often mirrors that are specifically made for this. And David was downstairs in the basement scrying. The rest of the team were upstairs um, doing a walk around with Derek. And then with, uh, connected by Walkie Talkie, and we heard a scream, and what you see on the footage is uh, David Wells just lose it and uh, mm-hmm. smash his head into the mirror.
1: Oh, wow. So, ah. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, so the mirror smashes
1: so, on his So, Karen, head. I mean, you've investigated hundreds of places. I mean, when yeah? something that, that's really drastic like this occurs, are you just more like the surgeon in that you're totally unemotionally involved? The in other words, you're just doing your job or, or do you get emotionally involved in this situation?
0: Um, I, think, I think for the most part I do remain unemotional, uh, definitely. I think Pendle Hill, the one I described in terms of people uh, collapsing, it was very difficult, near impossible to remain unemotional. That was a real exception because You know, if it happens to the first person, I keep my rational head on. I know that paramedics are there to deal with the person. I'm aware of perhaps the psychology that's built up to it. And I can kind of, the the key to me remaining unemotional about something is analyzing it immediately. When you don't have time to analyze something because immediately something else happens, then immediately something else happens and it just comes along in a flood, then it's very difficult to remain unemotional and you find yourself getting as excitable, you know, um, as everybody else. Um, I still managed to remain somewhat rational about the whole situation, but it was very, very difficult. To
1: well, David, have... I mean, uh, Karen, you're going to have to hold on because we have to take a okay. break right now. and We'll be Thank right you. back after following messages. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles on Pararex, Net and beyond.
2: Welcome to Talking Net, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange arranged unrestrained so grab your favorite rule it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the better family combine snide and remark and you've got snark Combine Lisa Mena and Valia Alvarez on Monday nights and you've got Deep Dish Snark. Monday nights at 9, 8 central, part of the Her Insight Network. When you've had enough at work or at home and you're ready to laugh, join Lisa and Value for their no BS look at the world and the people in it. They'll be serving up a no holds barred take on pop culture, current events, entertainment, and family matters with segments like Accidentally Helpful, TV is now my hobby, and Who Sucks This Week. Deep Dish Snark delivers something for every girl who enjoys life with a dash of sarcasm. Lisa Mana is a former TV news anchor turned stay-at-home mom. She's making sure if anyone screws up her kids, it's her. Valya Alvarez suffers life as a jack-of-all-trades, mistress of none, by juggling a PR career, marriage, motherhood, and more. Don't miss Deep Dish Snark with Lisa Mana and Valya Alvarez. Monday nights at 9, 8 central. Part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. We
1: are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles Live on Toji Net, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and Beyond. I am Ron Kolok. My co-host is the lovely Ann Kerrigan. And our very, very special guest is Doctor of Parapsychology, Karen O'Keefe. Hello. And I got that out. Anyways, did, <laughs> did you did you uh, get to finish your question before I cut you off?
0: Um yeah, I kind of did. You were asking, okay. it's difficult to remain uh, yeah. unemotional, and I do that to the best of my ability, but Pendle Hill was tougher than anywhere to do that. Right.
1: I mean, I get the same question because, as you you know, or maybe you don't know, is I work with a trans medium uh, yes. who uh, is, gets physical at, at times as well. I mean, I, we've had her tackle her before, and... Uh, you know, she's dislocated my finger. She's tossed me across the room. So, mm-hmm. I mean, people ask me about that, and I always say, no, I really don't get emotionally involved. I don't get scared because I really, uh, I really can't afford to. Basically, I mean, you, yeah. you're doing your job just as a surgeon does, uh, and you just you separate your emotions from what you're what you're doing.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, you have you have to as as an investigator. Otherwise, it's it's very difficult for you to kind of, I guess, make any conclusions as to what happened. You know, because you're immediately part of it. It's it's frustrating in a way, and it, and I guess it's it's good for that reason to have teams. That's why we have teams of people, because some people are essentially acting as observers to what happens.
1: And uh, I do want to mention something. We have a, I have a, I do a paranormal study group. In fact, uh, every third Tuesday of the month, and uh, we are having one on the 18th at the Circles of Wisdom in Andover. Which, by the way, when you come over here, you will be doing some uh, lectures and uh, workshops there as well. They just Great. I can't go that far out of the schedule. But uh, anyway,s this. this this week is uh, EVP, and we have a, a phenomenal EVP specialist coming in by the name of uh, Mike Marquardt, and and happens to work with him as well. And I would love to see, have you comment on uh, his equipment and, and uh, the validity of the, the EVPs that he gets. Because, And why don't you just kind of describe the, the type of uh, equipment and stuff that he, he takes on an investigation.
3: Oh, Mike has um, just these wonderful Steinhausen microphones. He's got, you know, an audio board. He has, (laughs) uh, you name it, and and any any kind of audio thing um, that you could have top of the line, and very sensitive. And he... He yeah, unbelievable EVPs. I've, I've never, I mean, I work with him all the time, and, and he will play things back for me when we're there in the field. Right. And he'll say, listen to this. And they're usually very clear. I mean, obviously you get the whispery, uh, mm. you know, kind of, uh, some of them I can't even hear. <laughs> um, right. But my range of hearing on the real high and the real low end is not that great. Um, but he, he really has some amazing EVPs. Um, I hear them yeah, live. You hear them can live. I, right can I just
0: to uh, respond to that already? You know, I don't know exactly the, equip, the equipment, but hearing Anne kind of describe some of the stuff and talking about Sennheiser mics and some of this stuff, you're talking about somebody who's you know got more knowledge and expertise in sound than irregular EVP or somebody that dabbles with EVP, you know, as part of an investigation. And I guess the good thing about hearing, you know, some of that stuff straight off the bat is Mm -hmm. that we're dealing with somebody that that knows about restrictions with regular digital dictaphones, with MP3 recorders, that sort of thing where you've got compression issues. And when you use recorders like this, you can have... The rustle of a coat, you can have somebody shifting weight, you can have somebody knocking and it sounds very distorted and can be so misinterpreted on these other devices. But if you've got the right sort of recording equipment, it's almost that you can tell instantly if there is any accidental noise on right. there, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's a good start uh, mm-hmm. straight away.
1: Absolutely. Yep. It's 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 interesting because you you, you think of EVP, you think of someone going in the room with a little handheld recorder, and and that's pretty much it. Uh, and then of course, hours we analyze it. This guy has uh, the, the most phenomenal amount of equipment, Karen. Uh, I, I drive. I went. I was lucky enough to go on an investigation with him, and uh, I mean the speakers are phenomenal. He's, he, he's got he carries more equipment just to do EVTs than <laughs> most people carry to do a full
0: investigation with everything, including cameras. Right. <laughs> well, that right. see that's... That, sorry, Anne.
1: You saying that, that's absolutely right.
0: That's... Yeah. Well, it makes sense, and. I'm pleased I'm pleased that there is somebody out there that's actually doing that. And the reason why is because, you know, running into the field with a digital dictaphone has its benefits in terms of cost, in terms of, you know, convenience. Um, and certainly people seem to be getting results. But if you look at the history of EVP with people like Friedrich Jürgensen, uh Konstantin Rodeev, all of these people who kind of started the field and got... The most impressive results back in the uh, 50s and 60s, and then other researchers into the 70s and 80s. These are people who did have that, you know, very, very high level of expertise in sound. The, the amount of equipment and recording equipment they had was huge. And it sounds like here we've got a gentleman that's doing exactly that. There's kind of a respectful nod to these early EVP researchers and saying, well, they got the results using a lot of this equipment. Technology has advanced now, so you know we can carry this equipment into the field, but still, you know, let's uh, give it our best shot and let's bring as much as we can. Fair enough.
3: That, that is absolutely what he does, and I, I can vouch for that because I usually help him carry it all in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's very dedicated. He's very focused. On what he does, um, and obviously when he started, he started like everyone else with a handheld recorder. But he does know a lot about sound and has graduated, you know, over the years to this full blown, you know, sound recording system. And right. um, and he's actually written his first book at this point in time, and has a DV, uh, excuse me, a CD in, right. that comes with the book with
0: uh, all his best EVPs on it, you know, to date. So.
3: Brilliant.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, this is somebody I'd love to uh, meet and know more about.
1: Well, you're coming yeah. over in August, and I think that we certainly can arrange that. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm sure you That's could awesome. have quite a discussion. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like we would. Definitely. I mean, uh, in, in, in uh, Scotland, I know there's a couple of guys who um, do carry full sound kits, round with them. Um, but I think the difference here that you're talking about, you've got somebody here who has that acoustics knowledge, or the acoustic engineer knowledge, at least. They're using equipment and they know how to use it. They know the intricacies of it. The problem I've had is meeting people who are investigators. They've started off with a digital dictaphone and then suddenly they're carrying a sound kit you know, around their shoulder the same way that you'd have a sound kit in filming example Ron you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh Now that sort of kit requires you know some sort of knowledge you can't just put it on and instantly know how to use it and unfortunately there's a couple of people in Scotland who are doing that and getting good results but they're good results as far as they're concerned without any knowledge of how the equipment works and it sounds like this gentleman Mike really knows what he's doing.
1: And we have a question from the, uh, the uh, TojiNet chat room, and it's from Nathan, and he asks, uh, do you believe that digital audio recorders pick up fewer and clearer EVPs than analog?
0: Fewer and clearer.
1: Hmm. That's, that's what uh, I
0: said. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Fewer. Well, the difficult... Okay, here's the issue. Um, Digital Dictaphones have been around how long? Oh, Uh, God. (laughs) A decade, maybe? Yeah. In terms of in the hands of investigators, let's stretch it to, say, a decade. Um, And yet EVP research has been going on since the 50s. So in terms of the frequency of EVP results and how many EVP results... We've got You're talking about comparing a decade of research with digital dictaphones to 50 years. Of, do you know what I mean? I can't really say that digital right. dictaphones are getting more. Um, I think perhaps what's happening now is you've got more people doing EVP research. Um, actually, let me change that. You've got more people doing EVPs in the field. I don't want to call it EVP research because I think that's a different level. I agree. Uh, um, but you've got people with digital dictaphones trying to get EVPs. Whether, whether they're getting fewer and clearer, um, I don't think they're getting fewer because you know, all you need to do is look on the internet and you know look at every other group uh, posting their examples of EVPs to realize that there's, uh, they're getting a lot of what they claim are EVPs Um, Are they clearer? That's a tough question. I really don't know. If you listen back to some of the recordings done with analog devices, either by some of the early researchers, Rawdive I mentioned before, but even if you look at some of the the recordings done by the AA EVP, the American Association of EVP, um, people like Sarah Estep, Martha Copeland, they've got quite clear recordings using analog devices I wouldn't like to say I wouldn't like to commit myself to say one is clearer than the other if you think about the technology involved why would one necessarily be clearer than the other if analog were getting results and now digital are getting results well if they're genuine EVPs then spirits can get through on either medium you know who's to say which is clearer and which one right. isn't
1: well let me ask you the $64,000 question oh here we if, go <laughs> it, 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 originally, when I learned about EVPs, and yeah. I had always, always, always been told that if you have two recorders and you get an EVP on both of them, it's not a true EVP. Because yeah. an EVP is not really a sound recording, but it's actually a spirit manipulating the white noise on the recorder to put, manifest its voice on. Is this correct or not? Yes.
0: Yeah, that's part of what I understand from the original Jurgensen, Rawdiv, David Ellis, uh, you know, even back to Meeks and even his Spiricom stuff. You know, that's what I understand is that you're not talking about a recording because uh, if it was a recording, then essentially we should be able to hear it live. Um, and, you know, if it's a recording, then you should be able to get it on two different uh, recording devices. Yeah, as I understand it, that's See, it's is, not this that what of ir- but the, but the This is the what kind of irritates
1: this- me, Karen, is, is that yeah. uh, we seem to be changing the rules of the game yeah. to fit our own particular le- needs. I mean, there is a, a ghost hunting group out there, for instance, they use thermal imaging. Now, once again, I've always been... Told and always uh, learned that spirits un- do not produce a hot signature. So it, all of a sudden uh, they're getting figures on uh, thermal imaging and they're spirits. It doesn't make sense. Are we changing the rules or, or are we learning yeah. something?
0: No, I think, I think there's an element of changing the rules, especially when you hear the explanation that's been given for, you know, spirits having heat signatures, it kind of has a pseudoscience logic about it, in that the spirits absorb the heat around, and that's why when there is the presence of a spirit, you feel cold. And therefore, that's why you're picking up the heat signature on a thermal image. This is, uh, that's what I mean by it It has a pseudoscientific logic. It has exactly that sort of logic where you go, huh, like you just did, you know, it it kind of, it, it kind of makes sense on some sort of level, but it is an element of pseudoscience because it is creating a theory to match the technology. You know, this is not something that, that, uh, was around before. Um, and I think as technology advances, we've got to be very, very careful. Like you say, Ron, of not changing the goalposts, changing the rules to fit, the new technology that comes in, you know, in the same way that with EVP stuff. I mean, have we really advanced by going to digital dictaphones? Has that really advanced the field? Mm-hmm. And I question whether it has or not.
1: I mean, you'll see, you'll see people out there recording, uh, quotation marks, EVPs, and they're using a parabolic dish. To right. me, uh, it doesn't make sense. If 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 you take accept my first definition as a true EVP, then what does the parabolic desk, dish got to do with it?
0: Yeah, if it's not about the recording, right? Yeah, it's if, about them. Yeah, imprinting. I think. I think the only you know the only uh, point to make is like we were talking about um, Mike stuff. Is it Mike? the the colleague of Anne, yeah we're talking about mic stuff is is trying to use equipment where you can easily discount other explanations for it um and i think that's a valid um move but yeah using stuff like a parabolic mic or using other methods yeah it's like you say it's it's changing the rules um and it's and it's dangerous and it's changing the rules as well when new technology gets developed, especially ghost tech stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, when ghost technology stuff gets developed and then a theory is built around why that ghost technology has been developed. Again, it's changing the
1: rules. Right. You know, and and I'm not not saying this to to um, discourage anyone from trying new things because we should, because we really don't know. Yeah, uh, how the the spirit world can affect certain objects. Well, let me let me give you an example. I did an investigation, and uh, I came up with this brilliant idea. Actually, I, I went to the Discovery Store because I wanted the black light, but it came with this uh, pen box. Do you, do you know what a pen pen box is, Karen? I don't know. It's, no. it's this uh, this uh, square object with all these little plastic pens in it. So if you took it. And you put it on your face; it would give you an imprint of your.
0: Oh, your, okay. Oh. I know what you mean. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. All right. So you, you know what this? Okay. So yeah. I, I took it on an investigation because it came with the the black light that I wanted, and uh, so I said, "Okay, I'm going to put this on the on the the kitchen because this was one of the areas there was a lot of paranormal activity. The house was deserted, uh, so we, we locked it all up and uh, we locked the house up and, and left the equipment running, and we went. And we came back the next day, and, uh, we had to get, unlock it and everything else, and we got in, all the equipment was squealing for some reason, and then when we, when we reached the room, it, it all went back to normal. But I ran up to this pen box, hoping that I would see the face of a spirit, you know, he would actually push the pencil. Well, you know what? There was no face in it. But the interesting thing about it was that about, I try to think of the exact number, I'll say five of the pens were actually pushed out all the way. Now they weren't even close to each other. They were just like a, a random uh, positions. So right. it, there, there was no logical explanation for it. Uh, no normal explanation. So I mean, yeah, it was a stupid idea, you know, that, that you would get the uh, person of a uh, uh, the face of a ghost in it. But yet they were moved. So in a way, it, it did. Uh, Kind of do what I wanted. Does
0: that make sense? Yeah, it did. You got you got a you got phenomena happening. Essentially. Exactly. The the what I'd like to do with exactly that piece of kit is set it up in a controlled environment mm-hmm. for the same period of time and see if the same thing happens.
1: Right, that would be.
0: Hmm. Ideal. See, it's you know, it's something to do with the pins. But uh, don't put yourself down by saying, you know, you were hoping that the spirit to imprint itself on there. You know, we're dealing with a, a field at the moment where we've got everything from Ovilus, Paranormal Park, Frank's Box, you name it, all manner of wild, and wild things. And uh, yes, and for you to suggest something like that, I don't think there's so way out. I think it's fine.
1: It's interesting because it is an unknown field. And we we really, I mean, other than, for instance, you and a handful of parapsychologists, Really, don't have uh, the expertise to uh, what's the word I'm looking for to, to properly investigate it.
0: Yes, yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's a field that is forever changing, and people are discovering new things, and they're discovering new technology. I guess the frustrating thing for me, and for some of my colleagues, and you know, uh, a couple of investigators I work with, is from the science. Point of view there are lots of these theories out there to do with electromagnetic fields to do with infrasound and what we'd like to see happen a little bit more is some of these theories tested more and more because at the moment they're not really tested um you know i i know for example emf meters are used for other things in a more spiritual sense or kind of you know getting anomalies but I'd like to see more data collection out there in terms of EMF, in terms of infrasound, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think there just needs to be better funding, you know, for people to do it, more of a recognition in the scientific community for it to happen. Um, You know, I'm always hoping that with my ever-expanding student body that I've got, you know, with people graduating from my school, with people doing PhDs under under me, that I'm hoping that these people will start to go out and collect the data because all these other approaches, EVP, some of this ghost technology stuff, all these other things, is fine. But I think what we also have to do is say, right, these other scientific theories, do these actually mean something or can we tick them off? Can we discount them and say, actually, they were a theory once, but actually we've disproven that it's nothing to do with haunting experiences. You know, that's what I'd like to see happen over the next five years or so.
1: It's really interesting, though, because, I mean, for instance, we have this group in the United States who has a show called The Ghost Hunters, and their theory yeah. is that uh, if you can reproduce it scientifically, then it's not paranormal. But the only problem with that is uh, they're not there at the time the original thing happens. So, right. yeah, just because it is can be reproduced scientifically doesn't mean it wasn't paranormal at the time it happened right okay. uh, for instance, let, me, let me let me give you a, a, an example. Uh, they were investigating this this place where a, uh, they would smell this this woman's perfume in the basement. Uh, so they went and they, they took some, uh, spray or something and they went by the bulkhead and they, they sprayed a, a lot of it and then they went and sniffed and they, they were able to catch it by the spray, the stuff that, uh, they had sprayed. Now, yeah, okay, so they proved that a, a, a high, uh, concentration of an odor could travel through the bulkhead and be picked up. But is it, for that particular odor to be at the time it was originally picked up, was it, you know, you would have to have that particular odor and under the same circumstances and and of course they weren't there at the time, so you, you really can't uh, totally discount it as just, okay, we did reproduce this, so it could have been this, but in reality yeah. they can't say it was that.
0: Yeah. I know what you mean. I think I think the tough thing is, you know, um, yeah. I think you're right. I think the problem is there has to be also recognition on investigators' parts, whether it's the TAPS guys or whoever the group is, mm-hmm. that we're dealing with. That we're dealing with something that is ultimately spontaneous. You know, okay. uh, the researchers a hundred years ago they called it spontaneous case research because we know haunting experiences can be spontaneous and often fleeting and who's to say you know what conditions were right for it to happen at that particular point right um you know and to try and to try and replicate or come up with some explanation after the fact and say well it could happen because of this i don't know it's it's not really scientific replication. You know, uh, I'm a bit wary about people using the word science and doing doing that sort of approach. Um, Some of the stuff that the TAPS guys do, I'd like. You know, I like some of their train of thought. But the rest of the time, I agree with you. There's a little bit of um, a lack of logic involved um, in trying to prove or disprove uh, a haunting in the way they do things.
1: It, that's the big hook in the, in the paranormal field is that mm. unless a occurrence happens all the time unless you're really there and able to record it at the time it happens and, and to get down all the condition conditions and everything it's difficult to either prove it or disprove it
2: yeah
0: it is and it just has to be recognition of that fact I think you know it has to be recognition of that fact unless you get some sort of repeatable phenomena, I think, the most most prevalent repeatable phenomena is stuff like...
1: Yeah, you're not going to believe us, but we have just about run out of time. Karen, you there? You still there? That
3: flew by. Yeah, (laughs) that flew by. (laughs)
1: It
3: (laughs) It did. Didn't it? (laughs) Yeah.
1: The, uh, the interesting the thing is, uh, I know you are coming over here, and, and you've got some really cool workshops. Uh, you've got to check the New England Ghost Project website. It'll be up by uh, June. We still have to hammer out some of the details on it. Uh, Circles of Wisdom will be hosting you for some uh, cool things. Uh, you have some cool workshops. I, I believe CSI, which is kind of, I think that's going to be phenomenal, actually.
3: Yeah,
0: it's going to be CSI uh, paranormal style. <laughs> but, uh, let's I, I, I love that idea
1: <laughs> that sounds great
0: yeah people yeah it will be a bit different i've got uh, see i've got forensic training in my background leading up to a parapsychology phd and i'll be uh, um, imparting some of that knowledge to the attendees in the workshop but also taking it one step beyond and um, looking at it from a psychic criminology point of view
1: I mean, because a lot of the stuff we do, uh, I mean, a lot of uh, things that a CSI does will be great in, in uh, ghost investigation.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And, the, and the, way, the way to approach things and in terms of evidence handling is the key thing. In terms of CSI, the evidence handling, those are lessons that all investigators can take in terms of uh, how to document, how to handle evidence so that it's not contaminated, you know, for future analysis.
1: Well, Karen, it's, it's been great for you. Uh, do you want to give out your website or anything like that before we, we kick you off?
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. My my website is uh, www.theparapsychologist.com, and also I have a school website, which is www.theschoolofparapsychology.com, org, And I've got uh, another parapsychology course starting at the beginning of June, and there are only a few, few places left if people oh, cool. want to sign up for that now.
1: Actually, I'll, I will have to uh, link that to our website as well. Anyways, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you so much. And you know what? For, for those who don't know, it's, it's almost 1 o'clock there in, in England right now, isn't it? <laughs>
0: That's right, yeah. I'm a bit bleary-eyed at the moment. Oh, right,
1: So you have, you have a good night, and thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much, Ron. Thank yeah. you, Anne. Good
1: night. God bless,
2: everyone. Good night. Good night. Good night. From goalies to ghosties, long legged beasties, and things that go bump. Darling, you ain't ready when I say...